My name is George Yancey, and I choose truth over tribe. Are you tired of tribalism? I think a lot of what the left supports is satanic. The only time religious freedom is invoked is in the name of bigotry and discrimination. Are you exhausted by the culture war? If they don't like it here, they can leave. You could put half of Trump supporters into what I call the basket of deplorables. Are you suspicious of those who say Jesus endorses their political party? Is it possible to be a good Christian and also be a member of the Republican Party? And the answer is absolutely not. From certainly a biblical standpoint, Christians could not vote Democratic. We trust the lamb, not the donkey or the elephant. This is the podcast that's too liberal for conservatives and too conservative for liberals. I'm Patrick Miller. And I'm Keith Simon. And we choose truth over tribe. Do you? As an African-American man, a committed Christian, and a professor of sociology at Baylor, George Yancey is in a unique position to talk about race and faith in America. After publishing major books on the issue, Yancey thought he was done writing about race. But the murder of Ahmaud Arbery drew him back to the topic to help find lasting solutions. George Yancey and I discuss lots of issues, including whether race is a biblical issue or only a social issue, why you hear the phrase white evangelical but never black evangelical, and how effective DEI training is. Let's talk to Dr. Yancey. George Yancey, welcome to Truth Over Tribe. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Well, I'm really glad to talk to you. You have written a book called Beyond Racial Division, a unifying alternative to colorblindness and anti-racism. So before we get into those terms and what you mean by colorblind and anti-racism, I just want to start back a little bit with your story. The way I understand it, you had written a lot on race and then had come to a point in your career where you thought, okay, I'm probably ready to move on. I think I should say you're a sociology professor at Baylor and have been in academia for a long time. And maybe you thought you would pursue other topics, write on other issues. And then Ahmad Arbery was killed. And you felt like you had to get back involved in this conversation. What was it about his death? Because there have been a lot of black men killed. What was it about his death that pulled you back into this topic that is so contentious? You know, it was his death. And I think right on top of that, George Floyd's death, too. I think there's a one-two punch. But I think that death hit me more. The Floyd death, I think, was more nationalized. This one was, too. And part of it is, you know, the way he, he was killed was he was just running around, running, exercising. And he saw a house, he saw interest in being built, went in there. He might have trespassed, who knows, but obviously didn't warrant what happened to him. You know, then these guys came, accosted him, attacked him, he tried to defend himself, they killed him. Right? And maybe, you know, it's one thing when you have a Michael Brown situation, which is a guy which may not have been a wrong shooting, that was come out, but he was at a store and he's creating some problems. I'm not saying that justifies him being killed, but I'm just saying that that's one thing. Auburn is just running. I like to bike for my exercise. My knees don't want me to run anymore, but I like to go out. So I guess part of it was me thinking that, you know, could that have been me? As an African-American, I think about these all the time, but most of the situations are not ones that I would be in, 
one reason or another. But that I could have been in. I could have been biking around and saw something interesting and people assume that I'm in the wrong place, wrong time. And, you know, so that probably is what touched it deeper than me than normally what happens, which creates, you know, confusion and sadness and wine clarity. And But this one, I think, was more personalized for that very reason. Yeah, I don't think it's uncommon for us to see difficulty and injustices out there. And for some reason, there's one story that grabs our heart or touches us in a more powerful way than the others did. I mean, any of these stories could have moved you or me or any of us, but there was something about him and that parallel between his love for running, your love for cycling that drew you back into this issue. And I guess one of the dispiriting things is that we seem to go through the same cycle over and over and over in this. In other words, there's some sort of incident, and maybe it was George Floyd or Maude Arbery or any of the other ones, Flando Castile, Alton Sterling. I mean, the list goes on and on and on, and there is an uproar about it. There's some sort of protesting. Maybe at some point those protests turn a little bit violent, and then there's the inevitable backlash against it all. And it's in the news media for a long time. Everybody's angry. And then it just kind of fades off until the next time we repeat the cycle. And it just kind of gets dispiriting. It almost makes you feel like somebody benefits from this cycle. I mean, at least that's my cynical take is that when you see a cycle like this and it just keeps repeating itself, somebody must be gaining something out of it. Why do you think we repeat this cycle? And do you see any beneficiaries? Well, I mean, there probably are. I mean, I think the people who benefit from us being so polarized, I mean, think about it. Race is just one of the many ways we're polarized. And I think your podcast is talking about the polarization and the way that the church contributes to it instead of working against it. And I think that the cycle goes on because we're not willing to take the steps in order to correct the atmosphere that's there. As I think about it, there are people who benefit from having people angry at others. And this happens on both sides. You know, there are people who benefit because we hate them. And that's well established in sociology that having scapegoats or people that you can blame is very useful for a community, for a subculture. And rather than dealing with the issues and trying to see things from different perspectives, it's better to just gin up the anger and the hatred against people. And that gives you status among your people and allows you something to blame for the problems. So I'm not saying that the responsibility is equal on both sides, but I think the pattern is equal on both sides. For example, if I was looking at communities of color, I'm not saying they're equally responsible, but the pattern is still there, though, of trying to find enemies in which we can blame so that we don't have to look at problems in our own communities. Well, and it seems to me, and I don't know, I'm positing this as an idea, and I wanted to talk to you because I know that you are a committed Christian, but you're also a proven sociologist who has had a lot of success in your field. So you have a different perspective than most Christians do on this, a broader perspective, maybe is the way to say it. And it seems to me that one person that benefits from this, one kind of person is the politician. So maybe this is on the, we'll just call it the police officer side. I mean, maybe this is the white side. I don't know exactly how to refer to it. And they benefit from 
defending their tribe from these attacks. But then there's, just to be frank, there seem to be people on the people of color side who show up at an event and stand in front of the cameras and maybe don't seek healing. Now, maybe they'd say, hey, look, I'm not here to seek healing. I'm here to seek justice. Okay, fair enough. I mean, I get that. I don't want to impose my perspective on them as they're sitting there. But do you see that there are people in power that would almost be set back if we actually had healing and harmony? Yeah, I do. I think we throw the media in there as well, because the media great stories. You get people arguing against each other. You bring in someone like me who talks about, hey, can we find peace? And, you know, that doesn't move the dial. Move the dial is people say, these people are wrong. These people are evil. These people are whatever. And that moves the dial. I think it is fair to say there are leaders of color who benefit from the hatred that's generated from there. That's not to say that that justifies things that happen to the African-American community or Latino Latino community. But I think it's naive to think that there are people there who kind of see it happening and it gives them power. Ironically, before the rise of Trump, I think conservatives had a good point when they talked about identity politics and how identity politics corrupts things. And I think that it does. I think identity politics, because it allows you not to critique people in your group. And then with Trump, though, what happened was identity politics became just as dominant on the right as on the left now. And I'm going to say that before Trump, that the right was objective and everything like that. But they did have a point that identity politics was poisonous. But now they're engaged in the same poison as well. Okay, so... I want to talk more about Trump in a second. I want to get back to this. Okay, there's so many places we could go. But let's just stay on this for one more second here on this identity politics, because I think most people who are white conservative Trump voters, evangelical Christians, we know famously 81% voted for Trump or something like that. I think they'd be shocked to hear you say that they have fallen for identity politics. They think of that as something in the LGBTQ community or people of color or whatever. So can you unpack that just a little bit more? Why do you say that many Trump voters have played into the identity politics game? Okay, so I guess it depends on how you define identity politics. And I've not looked at a recent definition, so this may be off, but I define it as supporting people who's for your tribe, to use your term, for the sake that they're for your tribe. And I think even though this may have happened on the right, I think the argument for Trump was more of this is the right thing to do for everyone. And with Trump, if you listen to his rhetoric, he says this to Christians, you know, that your group has been mistreated. And because you've been treated, I'm going to be your champion. Now, this is unlike some of the things you can hear in the identity politics on the left. And so that's why I would say that in 2016, the right became engaged in identity politics as well. Your group is the basis for which you vote. People who are going to support your group instead of thinking about solutions that help everyone. Well, you're definitely right that former President Trump came out on the campaign trail in 2016 and talked about how Christians weren't using their power, how he was going to fight for them. They were going to have a champion now in the White House. And I do think that a lot of people found that attractive, and that's why they voted for him. Okay, before we keep going down the Trump road, I just want to go back for a second and talk about the cycle of protest and violence and uproar and ignoring it. Something changed, because if you go back to the civil rights movement, they got something done. Like the protesters had a goal and it took a long time and a lot of sacrifice, but they accomplished real change. Whereas now it feels like protesters don't ever accomplish what they hope they would. So what changed between the civil rights movement and all the progress and today where we just have this endless cycle of craziness? So I think the nature of the race question changed. So 
if we're looking at the 1960s and 50s and, and even 70s, the major question was, are African-Americans, Hispanic Americans, Asian Americans, are they fully human? Are they fully human? You think those are full rights? Because, you know, what you're fighting for was really legal political rights. You have the right to vote, have the right to work where you want to work, live where you want to live. That was what was at stake. Now, the question today is, given our history of racial abuse, how can we create a fair society? That's a different question. It's a very important question. It doesn't mean that everything's okay. No one, other than a few outliers, no one's really arguing whether or not people of color are fully human. But we are arguing what should we do given our history of racial abuse. Some people say we need a more anti-racist approach. Others say we need to ignore race. That's where the argument is. I think that that makes it a little bit more tricky now. So if I don't have the right to vote, and I'm pretty sure with the right to vote, and you give me the right to vote, I have accomplished my goal. That part of having my rights is there. If I'm protesting to overturn centuries of racial abuse, how do I know my goal is met? It becomes trickier now. The questions are different. And in the past, it was more definable. Success was more definable. Very more definable, yes. And there was more widespread agreement, I think is what you're saying, on the humanity of all people, regardless of race. Whereas today, there's not much disagreement. And I want to talk about that affirmative action and a few things in a second. But after Michael Brown's death, he doesn't live that far from where I am at the University of Missouri. There were all kinds of protests, and you know, it was a long time ago, but people may remember that the football team at the university threatened to boycott a game against BYU if something wasn't done about the protesting on campus related to the Michael Brown shooting. And during this time, the church that I'm a pastor at, we built relationships with African-American pastors in our community. And we probably should have done that before, right? And I think they would say this same thing. But, you know, in the crisis, we started getting together and talking, and we've spent quite a bit of time together. And one of the conversations we had, I thought was really interesting. And we were talking about President Trump. He was president at this time. And just why was there such a divide? We agreed on so much with these African-American pastors. Our theology was, you know, largely the same, at least on all the core doctrines. We couldn't imagine, at least the people in our churches couldn't imagine, voting for Hillary Clinton. Here's a pro-abortion. Here's a person who pro-sexual revolution. They couldn't imagine voting for Trump because of the racial issues. They thought we didn't get it. We thought they didn't get it. In fact, a lot of black Christians, I think, felt betrayed by white Christians. Can you help us understand why black Christians felt so betrayed and why that has led to some division, racial division inside the church since 2016? Yeah, I think 2016 is going to go down as an unfortunately important year when it comes to race relations. And part of it is the election of Trump. And a lot of black friends who were legitimately trying to engage with whites who decided after that, no. And part of it is that, and when I say this, people push back. And so I want to be careful and say I'm not saying Trump is a racist. I am saying he does engage in race baiting. And you can see it when he talks about, you know, Mexicans as rapists, when he really critiques a Mexican judge on being a Mexican, when he denies knowing about the Ku Klux Klan. You know, so there's a lot of examples of, of Trump engaging what I call race baiting. Whether he himself is a racist or not is not something for me to say. I can't say I have seen the evidence that says that he personally is a racist. Maybe he is, maybe he isn't. But he engages race baiting. 
I think that was part of appealing to that white identity that he was using in order to gain political power. So he may, may well not be a racist, but still was appealing to that. And despite that race baiting, the whites that these African Americans had worked closely with, for them as if you didn't even listen to us. I feel like there was a normal Republican there, a Cruz or a Kasich, or especially a Rubio, who I think would have been a stronger on racial issues than a lot of the Republicans. Even if the African Americans voted for Clinton, they would have understood it. They would have understood, well, y'all are voting on abortion and you're voting on family and that sort of thing. Even though we disagree, we have different priorities, we understand it. But the race baiting of Trump, that being part of the calculus, I think made it hard for some African-Americans to continue to work along with whites at that point in time. So I think that that was, unfortunately, an important year. Well, I mean, yes, I agree. It seems like that there were some significant shifts. There became this movement like leave loud, like black Christians, African-American Christians should leave their white evangelical churches that they had been attending and do it in a loud way that drew attention to why they were leaving. And it wasn't because these churches had changed their doctrinal statement, their worship service hadn't changed, the preaching hadn't changed, the people hadn't changed. It was just that white evangelicals as a voting block had voted for Donald Trump. And that was more than a lot of these black Christians could tolerate, I guess. That's exactly true. Yeah. It wasn't that the whites were meaner to them after at certain point times, but it was the idea. I wonder if Trump had won, but white evangelical support was, say, 70% or 65%, lower than normal. I think it would have been more tolerable because it's not like you expect every single white evangelical to, but if they were less likely to vote for Trump than normal and Trump won anyways, then at least you could have sort of blamed, you know, maybe non religious whites. But the blame really came down on evangelical whites because they support Trump more than they supported Romney and McCain, who did not engage in race debate. Whatever other problems they had, they did not engage in race debate. Well, I've been very upfront with lots of people in my life that I didn't vote for Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. Uh, I, I couldn't bring myself to do either one. And yet it seems like a no-win situation when I understand where the black Christian is coming from and saying, hey, if white evangelicals are going to support this guy who is obviously taking part in what you call race baiting, I'm not going to stay in the same kind of dialogue I was before. But I also understand the, the white evangelical who's saying, well, I'm not going to vote for Hillary Clinton. So I always kind of said I could respect anyone who said, I'm going to hold my nose and vote for either one. You know, I didn't understand any Christian who could enthusiastically support either candidate. But I got the hold the nose vote. But, you know, when you come out with a poll that says 81%, it doesn't say 70% of this group didn't want to do it. They just didn't feel like they had any choice. And so it seems like we came to a lot of conclusions about people based on polling questions, which seems, I don't know, unfortunate. Well, to be fair, there is evidence that at least some Christians were enthusiastic of supporting Trump. Absolutely. Some Christians defended Trump. Who was it? Uh, someone says, when Thorne Downs came up, that he gets a mulligan for this. Yes. Something they would never have given to a Democrat. I think that was Robert Jeffress, uh, First Baptist Church Jeffress, in Dallas, yes. right? Uh, and there's a poll that shows that Christians changed their attitudes on immigration to line up with Trump. So, And there's another poll that shows that white evangelicals was the only religious group that changed their attitudes before 2016 to be more open to an immoral leader than any other religious group. Yes. I know I have white evangelical friends who held their nose and voted for Trump. But there's evidence that there's at least a decent amount that did not. I've actually had some friends tell me, you know, well, 
I know Trump is a bully, but he's our bully. And, you know, as a Christian, that, that's just, he's a fornicator, but he's our fornicator. I mean, I just don't get that. <laughs> Well, you're right. So I want to affirm that you are right. There were a lot of evangelicals who did enthusiastically do it. I don't think it was 81%. No, so it was not 81%. But there were a lot. And unfortunately, they were in leadership positions. And unfortunately, the news loves to cover people on every side who are more extreme because it draws more viewers. And so, yes, 100%, you are right about that. So let's get a little bit into your book on racial division, beyond racial division. You talk about some different approaches that you think have got stuff wrong that you're pushing back against. And one of those is colorblindness and the other is anti-racism. And those are two approaches that you want to say, hey, no, they might have some good in them, but I don't think they're the right approach. Can you just kind of explain a little bit each one? Let's start with colorblindness. What is it and what's your problem with it? Well, colorblindness is basically saying we're going to ignore race. You know, I'm going to treat everyone the same. I'm not going to pay attention to their race, and that's how we're going to solve the problem of racism. It sounds awesome, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, colorblind. I mean, both of them sound great. Colorblindness, anti-racism. I mean, who wouldn't want to be colorblind, anti-racist? Uh, but the problem is, when you look at the data, colorblindness would make sense if we had a society where everything was fair. But we don't have that society. The data is pretty clear on that. The first example that I give in the book, I think, I give others. But research has shown that we do what we call an audit study. We can take a white person and then either a black or a Hispanic person, sometimes both, and apply for a job. And everything else is equal. The white person is more likely to call back for the interview. So that's today. In fact, what the research shows is that has not gone away. That has not decreased over the past 20 years. And just to be clear, the only thing that gives them away is their name. It's a name their that name, sounds right, very yes. African-American or Hispanic their or whatever yes. the minority culture is. You have, I don't know what's in the white name, John Smith against Leroy something. Sure. So, something like that. So that's just one. I mean, we also look at research on criminal justice and education. It's not a fair society. And this is not saying that we're back in slavery or Jim Crow or any sort of crazy, you know, I'm not making a nonsense argument like that. It's just not fair. And if it's not fair and you're colorblind, how do you fix the unfairness? You can't. So that's why colorblindness for people of color simply does not work. We'll get back to the episode in just a moment, but today I want to invite you to become a partner with us through giving. If you enjoy this podcast and God is using it to change your heart and make you more like him, I hope that you will partner with us. If you've heard the stories of lives that have been changed, marriages that have been reconciled, church families that have been brought back together that were divided by political tribalism, and you want to hear more stories like that, again, I hope you'll partner with us by giving. Of course, I wish we could pull off a podcast without any cost, but running these things can be expensive, and your partnership in ministry with us goes a long way towards making Truth Over Tribe sustainable in the long term. If you want to give, click the link in our show notes, or you can go to choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. That's choosetruthovertribe.com slash give. I hope you'll partner with us in this gospel-centered ministry to glorify Jesus by fighting tribalism in our churches, in our communities, and in our families.
So let's talk about anti-racism then. What is that? And what's your problem with that perspective? Anti-racism is, I think the person I've heard it use the most is Ibram Kendi. Maybe it has usage outside of him. I don't know. Yeah. So what I did was actually when I was writing this, two books were on the top of the bestseller list. Kendi's was one, but his was second. Hmm. I don't know if you know the first one is White Fragility. Oh, sure. By Robin D'Angelo. D'Angelo, yes. So I read those books. I read other books that are also pretty high up. I wanted to know anti-racism as it was being taught to popular people, not in academia, which, you know, is discussed in academia, but not in academia. And there's a lot of overlap, but I wanted to know that way. And I came down to, there's probably more, but three things behind the ideas these people had. One, that racism is multifaceted. Two, that we must be intentional in fighting racism. And if these are the two things anti-racism was, I probably would call myself an anti-racist. But the third thing, and I found this in the book, in article after article, third point was that the role of whites is to do people of color want them to do. It is a part of the core of anti-racism. And I think it falls apart. And the research shows it falls apart. Diversity training does not, in the long term, reduce prejudice. In fact, it increases the chance for a backlash. If you use anti-racism to try to increase the number of people of color you're hiring for managers, you'll actually decrease the number of people of color. If you try to use grievance committees and things of this nature, you'll decrease the number of people of color who are hired. Teaching privilege about white privilege actually creates less sympathy for marginalized whites, but does not increase sympathy for marginalized people of color. So the research is pretty clear that this sort of aggressive approach, especially with the sort of caveat that whites supposed to do what people of color want them to do, does not make things better. In fact, it makes things worse. One of my understandings from Kindy's book is that the anti-racism position believes that differences in outcome between races should be seen as racism. So if there's a discrepancy, a statistical discrepancy between races and education or income or crime or whatever, that that should be seen as the result of racism. Do I have that right? He makes an argument like that. Yeah. I know that's a word for word, but yeah, use as evidence of racism. And, you know, it's not a hard argument to dismiss because you can just look at the NBA. I mean, there's clear racial discrepancies, but I don't think anyone says it's about racism. And I know that's an extreme example, but that suggests then, while it is definitely a factor, and one would expect discrepancies if there is racism, it by itself is not evidence of racism. So I think a lot of Christians, white evangelicals specifically, have gone for the colorblind approach. In other words, if you ask them if they're racist, they say, no, I treat everybody the same. And so they don't see themselves as racists. Again, we're not talking about any individual. We're just talking about a group of people. Well, not long after the murder of George Floyd, you know, there was a guy in our church who sat me down who said, hey, you guys, meaning the pastors, need to stop talking so much about race and start talking more about the gospel because race isn't a biblical issue. Race isn't a gospel issue. And I think some of that comes out of defensiveness, right? We're not racist here. Why are we talking about race? If somebody said to you, race isn't a biblical or gospel issue, let's get back to Jesus. What would you say to them? Well, I'd say yes and no. I mean, it's correct in that race, the way we understand race was not operating in biblical times. The way we understand race really emerged about the 14th, 15th century. But it is a biblical issue in that the Bible clearly talks about how we treat people in different stations of life. And to me, what I come back to is the whole notion of the Samaritan. Anything about the Samaritan, you're a pastor, so you know this. The Samaritans were around today, we probably call them, you know, a half-breed race, in a sense. So anytime you see the Samaritans in the Bible, they're talking about not race the way we define today, but they're talking about how we get along 
with ethnic others and with people who are different from us. So when Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan, he's making his ethnic other the hero of the story. When we go to the woman of the well, which is Samaria, Jesus, the way he treats the woman of the well is reflective of how we should be treating our ethnic others. So the Bible does talk about it. You can also look at other stories. You can look at when they deal with the widows and the preaching of the word and how they deal with that. You know, the widows were of a different ethnic group. Yeah, I think you're referring to Acts 6, where there was an argument in the church. People felt disenfranchised because there was a discrepancy between the Greeks and the Jews. And there was ethnic rivalry there. And that's the ethnic rivalry we see between Jew and Gentile in a variety mm-hmm. of churches that Paul speaks about. And he talks about tearing down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile. And so you're right. It's not talking about the race the way that we think about it today, but it is talking about unity across people who are very different culturally, ethnically. And unfortunately, though, we know our political pundits better than we know our Bible. I had another guy, very good guy, who reached out to me and told me that he was uncomfortable because the prayers in our worship service were becoming more political. And I asked him, well, help me understand what you mean, because I had no idea what he was talking about. And he said, well, we're praying about oppression and justice and things like this. And I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. So I told him to go to BibleGateway.com and just put those words in the search bar and tell me what he saw. And he's a really good guy because he wasn't trying to cause a problem. He really wanted to learn. So he did it. And he emailed me because these are all over the Bible, these words. And, you know, which ones meant the most to him and that kind of thing. And I just think people are more comfortable, you know, being shaped by, well, I don't know if comfortable right word. People are being shaped more by their political pundit than they are the scriptures. And they're coming to a worship service with their political glasses on and hearing oppression or justice and think we're talking about politics. Well, we're talking about the Bible's politic if we're talking about anything, right? Do you find that when you're having these conversations inside your church or just inside the academic community among Christians, that people are more shaped by their cable news or social media feed than they are the Bible, that Christians just don't know their Bible that well. So there's a vacuum there that has been filled from outside the Bible. You know, I think the way I would look at it is that the Bible really does talk about those issues and it talks about the sort of division between groups. So what we need to do is contextualize to today, which, you know, race is part of it. Honestly, I think race is just a component of the larger polarization in our society. And I'm here to fight on the racial issue. But if you think of the things that we can do on the racial issue, we can also do with the larger polarization as well. And so I hope that in trying to solve the racial issue, that we can also try to solve this polarization, which hampers us from solving our problems. And so as we think about justice and oppression and these divisions and mistreatment of one from another, for me, what Christians get right so often is the notion of human depravity. And that's what humans get wrong. And once we grapple with that, and we'll understand that, and we'll understand how we're supposed to deal with that, then I think that has all sorts of implications on how we look at race, how we look at our political division, how we look at all sorts of divisions we have in our society. And how we're supposed to approach it instead of, you know, trying to lord over others. I want to get to your solution to this issue because you are offering one. You don't just criticize colorblindness and anti-racism, but you offer another alternative. Before we get there, though, you hear the term white evangelicals, but a term you never hear is black evangelicals. Can you help us understand why? Because I think people get confused. Why don't black Christians think of themselves as evangelicals, at least not in 
broad terms. You know, maybe one here or there does, but that's not how they're referred to as a group. I don't think it's about theology, right? I think it's maybe more about sociology or history or something. So maybe you can give us some insight. What's funny, you say you never heard about the term because I just reviewed a book a couple months ago called Black Evangelicals. And it was a history book. And it talks about why African-Americans who theologically are, on average, as conservative or even more conservative than European-Americans, but they tend to not want to be identified with a white church that they associate with maintaining the system that holds them back. You know, you want to call it oppression, you can. You know, some people call it white supremacy. I don't, I don't like that but at the very least inhibits their abilities to thrive. And they see the white church is doing that. And so while they want to hold on to their theological framework, they don't want to be associated with that particular brand of Christianity. It almost seems like the term evangelical has stopped being defined theologically and is almost being defined, maybe like you said, as an identity, a political tribe, something other than theology determining whether one's an evangelical or not. And So black Christians and white evangelicals can believe a lot of the same things about the Bible and Jesus and all this. And yet black Christians don't want to be associated with that evangelical subculture. Right, right. I understand what evangelical means. I identify as an evangelical, proudly so. But it has come in popular culture to take on a political identity, which I don't identify with the political identity of evangelicals. I identify with the theological beliefs of evangelicals. And so I think that that is part of what's happening as well. You know, part of this discussion is that you said earlier that the difference between 1960s and now are that the questions that we're wrestling with have changed. The issues have changed. It's harder to define success. And I think some of it is around what racism is. I just think there are different definitions of racism. And so a lot of white evangelicals think of racism as treating a person differently because of their skin color or what have you. And I think Black Christians define racism a little differently than that. In other words, they see the systemic or structural racism. In in your book, you give some examples. Could you pick one or two and try to help us understand what structural racism looks like today? In other words, I think we all get that redlining was wrong. And that's an example in history of structural racism. Are there still structural racism issues today? Or is that something of the past that we're just dealing with its effects? Yes. All right. So a couple of examples. I think one famous one that people are familiar with is crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. That when it comes to punishing crack cocaine, you punish crack cocaine much harsher, same amount as powder cocaine, even though from what I'm told, they have the same basic effect. African-Americans tend to use crack cocaine, and so those punishments, the harsher punishments are African-Americans for doing basically what whites are doing with powder cocaine. That the law itself is not intentionally written to be racist, but the way it is implemented, unfortunately, it impacts African-Americans more than European-Americans. So that's one example. The whole redlining thing, when we look at housing audit studies, when we look at the loan mortgage guarantee program, the way it was originally set up, set up our society to be residentially segregated. So there's all sorts of ramifications in this segregation. Now, Technically, a person can move to wherever they can afford to. We know that when you have your family have been living there, your chances are your kids are going to be closer there and they're going to stay in this neighborhood. And there still is some evidence of discrimination reinforces this or segregation, even though it's not as over as it used to be. Once you have residential segregation, you have all sorts of negative outputs. For example, we know that the value of homes tends to go up at a slower rate in Black neighborhoods and Hispanic neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. It makes sense because if you have less people who want to move in there, then their homes are not going to be as valuable. We know that there's less resources in Black and Hispanic neighborhoods. When I went to Amarillo, I was in Amarillo, there's only two grocery stores in the whole Black area of town. 
There are dozens of grocery stores in the rest of the town. And there's not that many more whites than blacks in that town. We know that when you have this sort of segregation, that there is an effect, what is called American apartheid, which talks about the concentration of dysfunctions in the community. And so when you segregate a lower class community, you're going to get more intense crime, you get more intense educational problems. And that's another issue. When you segregate, then you can create a black school or a Spanish school. And then how are those, those schools treated? We know a lot of times they don't get the resources of other schools. So there's a lot of problems connected to segregation. And even though we don't have the laws against it, historically what's happened is created these black and Hispanic neighborhoods and Native Americans, and I've gone into the problems of reservations, that create additional problems for African Americans and Hispanic Americans. And so those are a couple of examples of how, even though we don't have the laws in the books today, people of color get the short end of the stick oftentimes. Yeah, and you can be as non-racist as you can be. And yet if you are in a structure, a system that perpetuates the effects of past racism or currently today enforces something that is racist, at least an outcome, you live in a racist society. Even if you as a person aren't racist at all, even if every American wasn't racist, we still have the structures left over from that that are affecting African Americans disproportionately in a negative way. But here's the thing, I don't know how to fix that. I don't understand what we're supposed to do to repair that. I mean, there was an illustration that Christian Smith and Michael Emerson, and you wrote a book with Michael Emerson, I believe, they used in their book called Divided by Faith. Divided by Faith. Yeah, thank you. And it was a story of a baseball game and picture in the seventh inning and you find out that one team is winning 20 to nothing, but it's also discovered that they are cheating. And so they admit it. They say, you're right. We were cheating. That's why we're up 20 to nothing. Hey, let's finish the game and we won't cheat anymore. And if you were on the losing side of that game, you might say, well, hang on a second. I'm glad you're not going to cheat anymore, but how are we going to handle the fact that you're up 20 to nothing? We can't just complete the game. And yet that's the world we're in. We can't go back and start over and start our country over or start the world over again. We live in a fallen, broken world where there's a lot of injustice and a lot of disadvantages. How do we fix those? Yeah, so once again, the question is, Given a history of racial abuse, how do we create fairness? And also acknowledging that the mechanisms that were overt are, are gone today. And I think it's legitimate for whites to fear that some of the corrections will overcorrect. Because history, that's what tends to happen, right? Look at Cuba. Cuba was a reaction to oppression, and then Castro came along, and there's an overcorrection. So how do we negotiate this? And that's why I think it's very important that we have a collaborative conversation approach. That we come into it, we share our concerns, and we try to find solutions that move us forward. And solutions that bring people on board. I believe that, not all, but most whites, if they engage in collaborative conversations with people of color, are not going to get everything that we want. And that's probably a good thing. Humans don't work well getting everything that we want. But we'll be more attuned to the problems that have emerged and want to try to correct them. And I think that that is what's missing. The problem with both approaches, ultimately, both of them say, look, we're the solution, you buy our solution, and that's what's going to fix the problem. That does not work in our society. That does not work in general for humans. we got to have real conversations, not monologues, real conversations to fix these solutions. And when we put everything on the table, I mean, we see the reality of everything on the table. We're trying to figure it out from that point forward. And is this what you call mutual accountability? Yes, yes. Mutual accountability or club conversations. And where does that going to happen? Because when I read this mutual accountability in opposition to colorblindness or anti-racism, it sounds so attractive. I just don't know 
how to have that conversation, who to even have it with, who's going to be in that conversation, who gets a seat at the table. Is this a local thing, a state thing, a national thing, a church thing, a business thing? Where does this happen? Do you have a vision for how it gets kind of played out in life? Yeah, so, you know, whichever problems will happen at different levels, obviously. Uh, right now, I'm trying to do some research where I'm trying to study doing this in churches and in Christian schools and hopefully Christian colleges. But I also hope, you know, to eventually branch out into doing this with non-Christian schools and public institutions and school boards and things of this nature. I'll tell you where we've already seen it work to some degree is the same research that shows that anti-racism techniques do not increase the number of managers hired of color shows that when you take those white managers and say, hey... Can you help us solve the problem? Can you mentor people? Can you lead up our diversity task force and solve the problem together? You get the result that you want. When you try to stigmatize them and they're doing what you want them to do, you don't get the result that you want. So we've seen it work in businesses. And there's actually a study out there in the highest ranked journal that shows that it works in businesses. I think we can get it to work in different institutions. And at some point, yes, when you deal with national, federal issues, we have to figure out how we're going to do this to federal government. But I think it was working at the lower levels. We will figure it out how to do the federal government. But I think we have to get it working in our churches, in our schools, and in our parachurch organizations first. Well, I agree that we need to start at grassroots, and it would be great if the church led the way and showed our culture a better way. Jesus unifies us in a way that the world wants unity but can't ever find it apart from Jesus. And it makes sense to me that we're better off starting at the grassroots on smaller local levels instead of on a national level, which some days just seems— utterly hopeless. One of the topics today that everybody's talking about is Christian nationalism, and we referred to it a little bit earlier in Christian identity politics and that kind of thing. And just for our sake here, I'll just say Christian nationalism is a wedding of civil government with some form of Christian faith to give people power on a government level. And I am completely reject every form of Christian nationalism, but I want to ask you a question that I think maybe is a little sensitive. I hope you aren't offended by it. One of the things that Christian nationalists are critiqued for, and I think rightly critiqued, is trying to merge government and the church together. But what I see in the black church is sometimes doing the same thing. Like Vice President Harris spoke at the National Association Baptist Convention. You see Democratic politicians speak in black churches. Now, I'm against it at all points and every side, but can you help me understand why one is vociferously, enthusiastically critiqued and the other kind of gets a pass? Yeah, so Christian nationalism is an interesting topic. I actually am a critic of the way we're trying to measure Christian nationalism. I think that's created some of the problems. And stop me, this gets into the weeds too much because, you know, I don't want to go nerd on, on you all. Let's go. But the scale used, I think, does not work. I don't think it's a valid scale. You know, I think it measures something else. What I think it measures, and I don't know this for certain because I've not done the research. I'm not sure I'm going to do the research because I'm busy enough. But what I think it measures is the degree to which people support certain Christian-inspired ideas in the government. For something perhaps like abortion or something like issues around religious freedom. The problem with that is you could do that about with just about any special interest group. I think you're seeing the black church. I think you can argue there's a black nationalism scale you could create about people who advocate for issues that are pertaining to what African Americans generally see as wanting, or feminist national scale. I think you could probably create those scales. We've decided to focus in on Christians creating those sort of scales. 
Having said that, I do think, and I run across Christians who do have the idea. I think a guy just came out of the book, and I've not read it. I don't have plans to read it on the case of Christian nationalism. And from what I've heard about it, it actually advocates a Christian form of government. There are Christians who want that. I just don't know what percentage of population that truly is, and I don't trust the scale to measure that. I think the scale is flawed, and I've done some investigating. It's never been truly validated qualitatively. And so it opens itself up for critiques of, well, what do people mean when they answer these questions on your scale? I don't think we really know what they mean. Yeah, that makes sense. There's a lot of terms that are used, and maybe there's different definitions for them. But I still kind of want to your opinion on whether you're okay with politicians and the black church working so closely together inside of worship services, inside of denominations, or if you think that that's not right, regardless of what's happening in the white church or black church, or maybe you think it's fine in both places. I don't know. It's just the inconsistency. All right, so I just want to get on board on Christian nationalism that I think it exists. I don't think we do a good job measuring it, and I'm doubtful of a lot of research on it. Okay. My pastor preached something a few years ago, and this is where I'm at. If on the morning at the election, you think that we're saved because of who we elected, or you think we're doomed because of who you were elected, then Christ is not your God. Amen. <laughs> That's where I come from. I'm not uncomfortable with teaching values. I'm not uncomfortable with the pastor going up there teaching about justice or teaching about being pro-life you know, saving lives. I'm not uncomfortable with that because those are values that I think the pastors should be teaching. I am uncomfortable when it gets partisan. When pastors allow people to come and say, vote this way. That I don't like. I'm, I'm grateful to be in a church that does not do that. It teaches values. You know, if you go to our church, our church probably is very concerned with racial justice and, and we don't mind preaching about that. We also, our church that supports the notion of abortion is wrong. But you can support those things without saying, and therefore vote for such and such and so on. And leave it up to me to decide who I'm going to vote for. I don't say, oh, because African Americans are doing this, now it's okay. No, I just assume not having my church. Toward the end of your book, I think this is where the quote is. You quote Dr. King. It's 1962. And he says this. He says, people fail to get along because they fear each other. They fear each other because they don't know each other. They don't know each other because they have not communicated with each other. And you referred earlier to the Samaritans and Jews. They had the same story, right? I mean, they didn't live together. They didn't shop in the same markets. They didn't worship in the same temple. And so it explains a little bit of why James and John thought it might be a good idea to destroy the Samaritan village. You know, they asked Jesus, hey, can we napalm this village? They'd heard a lot about Samaritans, but they didn't know any Samaritans. It explains, like you said earlier, why they were shocked when Jesus was talking to a Samaritan woman at the well, because you didn't talk to Samaritans. It explains why, like you said earlier, the parable of the good Samaritan was so offensive to them. They didn't know there were any good Samaritans. And yet, not long after they want to call down fire and destroy the Samaritans, Jesus is crucified, he's resurrected, and Jesus is winning Samaritans to himself. He's drawing Samaritans are now becoming Christ followers. So I can imagine James and John sitting in a worship service with some of the Samaritans who they had wanted to kill not long before. And I think, well, Jesus has this chance to unify us. And yet I think what Dr. King said is still true. 
that we still fear each other because we don't know each other and we don't know each other because we haven't talked to each other. And like you explained earlier, we tend to live in the segregated communities that have been established long ago and they're still to some extent, a large extent, still enforced, not legally, but just socially. So do you have any hope for communication? Your whole thing is built around collaborative communication, mutual accountability, sitting down, processing, learning, listening. You know, as the guy who's pushing this idea, and I think it's a great idea, by the way, give me a little hope. Give us a little hope of how that's going to happen when, when it seems like we're in the same place that you were in the 1960s and the same place that we were in the first century. You know, my hope is in the long term. I realize this is not going to happen overnight. And so I have to be in here for the long term, probably the rest of my life. I think more about my kids' lives, that maybe they'll see the full fruition of these efforts. I think it's actually an opportunity for the church in a post-Christian world to show the world something they're not seeing. And that's one of the reasons why I'm at least starting in the church. I will work with non-Christian groups, but I'm at least starting in the church at this point in time. Because I want the church to really provide this solution. I want the church to really emerge and to stop taking sides and to bring them together. That is my hope. I do think the research suggests this should work. So if we can really start getting momentum, it should work. And so I'm eager to work with people to help to make it work. But yeah, it's a long term. I mean, unfortunately, next year, the solution will not arrive in full force. It's going to take a lot of work. I was having a conversation with a recovering alcoholic who leads a ministry in our church. He's been sober for 25 years. And we were texting back and forth about someone that I know who has some addiction issues. And I said to him, look, it looks utterly hopeless, but I believe that Jesus raised from the dead. I believe that Jesus is alive. Therefore, I don't have the option of giving up. It's just not an option that Jesus allows me. He rose. There's always hope, right? And I think that's what you're saying, that you don't have the option of giving up hope. If you just looked at experience, if you looked at human nature, like you said earlier, their human depravity, well, your hope is not in that. Your hope that is that God has a plan to unify the world under the kingship of Jesus, and therefore you're going to keep laboring, trusting that he might use your efforts to make something happen here to change the way that we live with one another. And I really appreciate it. Hey, I would encourage people to pick up your book, Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. It doesn't just critique what's happening, but it offers a real solution. So if you want to make a difference, then you might want to read this book because it will give you some tracks to run on how you might be able to start one of these collaborative conversations in your community. Dr. Yancey, would you be willing to pray for us, pray for the church that we might be unified and that might overcome some of these racial obstacles that we've been facing? Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, I thank you for this day, Father. I thank you that uh, you will be with us and help this message out, Father. Help us be a light of cooperation and collaboration and that we can show the world there's a better way. And not just a better way in handling our racial differences, but a better way to understand the nature of humans, a better way of finding salvation, Father. So I pray for more and more Christians to be on board with this and that this because of, uh, that collaboration, not engage in the polarization, not, not supporting try no matter what, that this can really emerge within the church and spread out through our lands. Uh, and that uh, it would just be with us, Father, through all of this. And we just trust you and, and trust that you will uh, be glorified in all our efforts. In Christ's name we do pray. Amen. Amen. Dr. George Yancey, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you. God bless. 
Thanks for listening. If you found this podcast helpful, make sure to subscribe and leave a review. And make sure it's at least five stars. Stop. No, just be honest. Reviews help other people find us. (laughs) Okay, okay. At the very least, you can share today's episode. Maybe put it on your social, your favorite text chain. And if you didn't like this episode, awesome. Tell us why you disagree on Twitter, at truthovertribe underscore. We might even share your thoughts in an upcoming newsletter.